If you read the front pages of the newspapers, as I do, or watch the evening news, you may often feel like the world is out of control, just kind of running amok. And the writer of the psalm that we're going to look at this morning faced those same feelings, that same uh, reality. And so if you make your way to Psalm 2, we'll take a look at uh, the writer's perspective of in this passage of Scripture, when things seem to uh, be arrayed against the forces of good and things seem to be out of control. I read a story this uh, last week that kind of illustrates what happens when things get out of control. Amazing story about this guy who was a construction worker in Southern California, had a dream to fly in a hot air balloon, but he was a man of limited resources, but he had better idea. I didn't let that stop him. Somehow he got his hands on 45 six-foot weather balloons, and he filled them with helium and tied them to his lawn chair. And uh, then as a safeguard, he tethered this aluminum lawn chair to his back porch. Just wanted a little thrill, not a big thrill. So he launched, and unfortunately for him, the tether that anchored his chair to his porch wasn't strong enough, and it snapped. And so he began to go up, up, and away, carried by these 45 weather balloons. Went up, and up, and up. He was finally spotted by a Delta Airlines pilot (laughs) at 16,000 feet. Radioed LAX. LAX, this is uh, Delta 249er. We have a flying lawn chair at 16,000 feet. Now, fortunately, the guy had packed along a little pellet pistol for this uh, kind of emergency, so he pulled that thing out and started popping some of these balloons, but he lost his grip on the gun and it fell. And so he was there for a time, was just at the mercy of the elements, and finally his lawn chair began to drift back to earth and he wound up snagged on a power line several miles uh, from home. Uh, He was interviewed after it, and he said, well, I'm never going to do this again, Uh, but I would be glad to endorse uh, Sears lawn chairs if they're interested. But but sometimes it seems like uh, like our poor friend in the lawn chair that the world has kind of slipped its tether and is just kind of careening out of control, and that's the set of circumstances that the writer in Psalm 2 is, is dealing with, and this can be helpful to us. If you look at Psalm 2, you'll see that it's arranged in four paragraphs of three verses each, four strophes of three verses, and we'll take each one of these in turn. He gives us the problem in verses 1 through 3. Why, he says, are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising or imagining a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. You know from the New Testament that this psalm was written by King David. My guess is it probably was written by David toward the end of his life as he was preparing to hand over the rule of his kingdom to Solomon. He had subjected a number of surrounding kingdoms. His empire was large, uh, very broad at this time. He had control over many of the surrounding nations in the east. 
And as he neared the end of his life, evidently these surrounding nations took this as an opportunity to gather their forces together into an alliance or a coalition and try to unseat the king to, to break the bondage, the yoke that they had been placed under by, by David. And in preparation for that, I believe David wrote this psalm for himself and also for Solomon to be a word of reminder, a word of encouragement to himself as he saw these nations beginning to join forces against him and a word which would encourage Solomon likewise as Solomon would come to the throne and would find as he took power that many of the most powerful nations in his world were joining forces with the the effort to, to destroy him. And that's what the peoples are, are doing. They're devising in verse 1. They are devising, strategizing this overthrow of God's anointed king. Notice the belligerence in verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand. They station themselves, pictured with their feet apart in a, in a stance of defiance with their arms Crossed or their fists raised and, and clenched. And the rulers take counsel together in union, uh, developing a strategy together to combine their forces and unseat this messianic king, just as the leaders of the Western world were meeting in Houston this week to plot economic strategy for the free world. So these kings met in a summit to plot together how to unseat the Lord and his anointed. And you notice in verse 3 that they are seeking to tear the fetters apart. Fetters are shackles that, that imprison and bind. He uses the word cords in verse 3, referring to twisted rope that would bind them so they could not move. And their efforts were joined together to, to unseat uh, the king and to challenge and overthrow his rule of them, to cast off the yoke that they were wearing. Now we find in the pages of the New Testament that not only did this psalm have relevance in David's day, but it also finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who is the ultimate son of David. He is the one who is truly, above all others, the Lord's anointed. And so the New Testament understood that the fulfillment of this psalm was to be found in the person of Christ. Many of the psalms, as you read them, you will discover are true at the very same time on two levels. They had historical relevance and were true on that level and yet they find their ultimate fulfillment in the person of, of Christ. And so what the New Testament indicates then is that this psalm helps us to understand some of the events and dynamics and ebb and flow of cultural and political events in our own culture and in our own world. The writer indicates is that what we can expect to see is that we can expect to see the most influential people in what the New Testament calls the world. The writer refers to them as the nations or the peoples. New Testament uses the term the world to refer to humanity apart from God and their collective mindset and their collective philosophy of life. And the writer says you can expect to find that the rulers of the earth, the political figures, the judges, the legislators, those with influence, the educators, the journalists, those with power, the ability to shape and mold, you can expect to find that their forces will be joined to resist God and to resist the truth that centers around his anointed one. And there's one common thread that ties this opposition together in verse 3, and that is to regard the truth about God and the truth about Christ 
and the teachings that he brought to us to regard that as something which is confining and restrictive. If you read columns and so forth, you will discover this is a common thread in those that resist the gospel. They argue that it is repressive and it is restrictive, that it has people in bondage, that it's limiting, that it's oppressive, and that what we need to do is we need to shake free from this yoke if we are to truly be free. And you'll often find, in the writer says, in the world, an attitude of defiance toward God and toward his gospel and toward the person of Christ, a spirit of rebellion and hostility. And you see this demonstrated in, in our culture uh, all over the place. Uh, in the world at large, we see this in China. It's a real crackdown right now in the nation of China against Westerners who were there to share the gospel with, with the Chinese. Uh, there's a, a, a real resistance to any effort to plant the gospel in China on the part of, of the leaders and the rulers of that people. Part of it is because they have seen the effect of the church in cultures like Poland and Czechoslovakia, where, where the church has been salt and light in repressive nations and begun to bring freedom and overthrow tyranny. And they want no part of anything that will, that will begin to, to plant the same seeds in their culture. So those that are from the West and are in China with the, with the desire to, to share the good news of Christ are in increasing dangers, more security risks than there have been in the past. In our culture, you turn on Channel 4, you'll see Carl Sagan, very uh, educated, very sophisticated, very urbane individual, wearing $200 Gucci loafers. Who wouldn't listen to somebody who dresses like that, with tassels no less? And he tells us quite convincingly and persuasively that, that belief in a God who created everything is utter nonsense. It's absurd to believe something like that. And then you'll find in California right now the Institute for Creation Research, which is dedicated to, to science, but also committed to a biblical worldview that the State Board of Education in California is trying their best at this point to put them out of business, to revoke their license to operate. So on the one hand, you see a, a godless approach, a godless worldview being advanced with our tax dollars on PBS. And on the other hand, you see a very powerful administrative body seeking to repress, on the other hand, anyone who would teach from a scientific point of view support for a biblical view of origins. Uh, the media engages in uh, what Ray Steadman called a conspiracy of silence about God and the name of God. I've mentioned this before, but the, the president in Czechoslovakia, Vaclav Havel, is a, not only a writer, but a strong believer. And his speeches are repeatedly peppered with biblical allusions and references to God's deliverance of his people and so forth. And most of those are excised before they ever appear in the Western press. Uh, we've seen in our, in our own country a real struggle with the abortion issue. If you picked up the newspaper this morning, you saw that the latest effort in the state of Louisiana fell three votes short. And each time it seems there's some effort or possibility that some part of our country will begin to preserve in, in legal form protection for unborn human life, it seems to be frustrated. And the forces that, that resist this seem in the, in the end uh, to triumph. Perhaps you've been following the controversy around the National Endowment for the Arts. Again, our tax dollars at work funding... Uh, artists who paint pictures of Christ as a heroin addict with a needle hanging out of his arm, 
another uh, artist uh, painted a picture of the cross uh, stationed in a jar of the writer's own uh, urine. And you look around and you see this this uh, massive, uh, although it's uncoordinated, nothing as far as I can see, not, these people do not get together and cook this stuff up, but motivated by an unseen powerful strategist, their efforts seem on every hand to be geared to resist and to tear down the things of God and the truth of God. And so the question then becomes for us, how do we respond to that as believers? How should that affect us? What kind of things should we remind ourselves of in order to deal with this? What should our mindset be about this? All sorts of reactions that we can have. We can become angry. Uh, We can become very accusatory. We can become self-righteous, condemning. Uh, We can become aggressive, hostile, finger-pointing. We can become paranoid, frightened, fearful. Well, the writer was faced with all of those same temptations, all of those same feelings, and yet he had found a way to steer himself through these choppy waters. And he took his cue from the way in which the Lord responded to this. How does the Lord respond when he sees people shaking their fist in his face and combining forces and in ways that are apparently successful to, to resist him and reject his truth? Well, this is the response of the Lord in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Notice several things in this picture. First of all, the Lord is pictured as seated. There's a, uh, an, at, an atmosphere of, of relaxation here. The nations in verse 2, the kings, take their stand against Yahweh. Does Yahweh rise to his feet and square off with them? No. He sits in the heavens with his legs crossed. Picture also probably is that he is sitting on his throne. Just a subtle reminder on the part of the writer that he is the one who is in control. He is still sovereign over human affairs. He is the one who still sits on the throne which governs the universe. He's in charge. He's in control of everything that we see going on around us. Nothing can happen in the world without his permission, without his involvement. Nothing. He's still in control. And finally, the writer points out that the, the Lord's initial reaction when he sees all of this human defiance is laughter. He finds it comical, something humorous in the efforts of these men putting their resources together to resist him and to reject him. Uh, if you've ever read the book uh, Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, there's a pretty vivid scene in that book. It's been a long time since I've read it, so it's a little fuzzy. But Gulliver washes up on the beach or something like that in the land of the Lilliputians. These Lilliputians are these real tiny little people. And Gulliver, who is normal size, is a giant to them of immense proportions. And they immediately feel threatened by his size and immensity. And so what they do is they tie him down with Lilliputian string which would probably have in human terms about the strength of, of a spider web. And they get him all tied down and hammer the stakes into the ground and they think they have him under control and 
the leader of the Lilliputians climbs up on his chest when he awakes and begins to read him the, the riot act and tell him in no uncertain terms who's in control here. And it's a comical scene because Gulliver, with just the slightest flex of any of his muscles, could burst these bonds that they think they have him in control and could destroy them, could squash them like, like little tiny bugs. And so it's comical. It's almost farcical to see. And that's something like what the writer is saying here. The Lord is not in the least threatened by what he sees. It doesn't panic him. It doesn't make him insecure. It doesn't make him peevish. It doesn't worry him. It doesn't make him anxious. It doesn't make him fretful when he sees so many people resisting with defiance his truth. He finds it instead comical. I think one of the reasons that he finds it uh, somewhat humorous is because he is sovereign and he has a way of turning what appear to be victories for evil into triumphs for good. I've been reading my children the uh, story of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50, and that's a remarkable story of Joseph experiencing one reversal after another, and yet in every case God using that very defeat to bring about a new triumph in Joseph's life and for people that he was designed to protect. The climax of that story is when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He's the second most powerful man in the world. They are peasant immigrants from a poor country. And they realize immediately that their lives are in grave danger, that Joseph has the power with one word to have them executed, eliminated. And yet Joseph calms them down with with these words. He says, you meant it for evil. When you sold me into slavery out of spite and malice and anger, he says, you meant it for evil. But God, he says, meant it for good. The very same thing that you meant to destroy me and to destroy life, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. So God in his sovereignty has a way of turning what looks like an advance for evil into an advance for the truth. Some of you may have read the missionary book, Brushko, uh, written about the missionary by the name of Bruce uh, Olson. Fascinating book. really encourage you to read it sometime. Bruce Olson was about 25 years ago or so, was a 19-year-old high school graduate, never been to Bible college or seminary day in his life felt God placing on his heart a burden for the Motoloni Indians in Colombia. And so with no mission agency behind him, with no training behind him, he just left, showed up in Colombia. No resources, no support, no training. Uh, but convinced that this is what God wanted him to do with his life. And he went into the, befriended the Motolonis, fascinating story, and eventually was able to plant the gospel among them. And that tribe today is thriving spiritually because of his efforts. Well, over the course of time, he became a, a very popular figure among the tribal peoples in Colombia because he was clearly there for them, very influential. Well, there's a good deal of leftist activity in Colombia. And a couple of years ago, the leftist guerrillas in Colombia decided they would kidnap Bruce Olson. They could use him as leverage because of his popularity with the tribal peoples. They could get concessions out of these Indians by holding him hostage, and so they, they kidnapped him. Well, Olson began to befriend some of his guerrilla captors who proved, in some cases, to be kind-hearted and affectionate, developed relationships with them, began to share his faith in Christ with them, and so forth. 
uh, over the course of time, some of the guerrilla commanders in that camp asked him to begin teaching them some courses on political science. And he agreed. And of course, what the commanders gave him to teach these guerrillas were the writings of Marx and Engels. And so he began to do that. But he found that these guerrillas could barely read. They were practically illiterate, and the writings of Marx and Engels were too complicated for them to make much sense of. So he said, look, the first thing we've got to do is teach these soldiers how to read. Now, the best source book I know for that is the New Testament. Would you please get me copies of the New Testament, one for each soldier? So they said, sure, we'll do that. So uh, before long, these guerrillas in the jungles of Colombia were reading the words of Christ in, in the book of, of Matthew. One by one, these hard, uh, hardened uh, soldiers became believers in Christ. Well, the national leadership got wind of this. They said, we've got to put a stop to that. So they cleared out all of those guerrillas and sent them other places and brought in a whole new batch. And pretty soon they were reading the words of Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. And they finally said, look, we just got to get rid of this guy. They gave him back. They said, this guy's going to turn our guerrilla camp into a Bible conference. He's, uh, let's get rid of him. Get him out of here. And they, and they gave him back. And again, an example of the way in which the Lord who sits in the heavens laughs at the, at the efforts of men to undo his work because of his sovereignty and, and his power. He is able to turn these into triumphs for the, for the truth. But there's a very sobering note in verses 5 and 6. He says that in time, when the Lord encounters defiance, his laughter turns to anger. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Writer's point is that hostility to God and to his truth, defiance, rebellion against him, eventually will arouse his wrath. His laughter will turn to anger. And he has a word then that the Lord wants to speak to these surrounding nations out of his burning anger. I just want to be sure we don't misunderstand what the writer is saying here, what the scriptures teach. Because when the Lord sees that we long to do right, we want to do right, and what incapacitates us is our weakness, that despite the desire of our heart, the intention of our hearts, the longing of our hearts, we still find ourselves failing, falling into sin. That arouses his compassion and his patience. He is for us. And when we fall out of our weakness, he is infinitely patient with us. And he picks us up and dusts us off and gives us a little nudge and says, back out there and I'll help you to get them the next time. Don't worry about it. I died for that. But the writer's point is, when we sin, when we pursue what we know as sin, out of defiance, out of rebellion, when it's willful and deliberate, then the writer says in time that is going to arouse the anger of the Lord. And this is what he speaks to them in his fury in verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In David's time, the Lord's point to these surrounding nations is that David and his son Solomon, they are my kings. I, there's a real emphasis there, you notice, as for me, this is what I have done. I have installed them as my king. In other words, his point to them is, look, I have made them king. I have anointed them as king. I have installed them as my king. 
on my holy mountain and all of my energies, all of my resources are committed to supporting them and defending them and advancing their kingdom. So you may as well get used to it. Your resistance to my king, to David and to his son Solomon, is futile. That's why the psalmist calls it a vain thing in verse 1. It's not vain in the sense of prideful, but vain in the sense of empty. It's a futile thing. It's a waste of time. That's, that's why the writer begins this psalm with a question. Why do they do this? There is not a million to one chance, he says, that these nations will succeed in overthrowing the yoke of the Lord's anointed. So why do they bother? And that's the Lord's point. I've made him my king. He's going to be my king. Nothing is going to change my mind. I'm going to support, defend him. Therefore, you may as well get used to it. Now, the New Testament use of this passage obviously finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. That he is the ultimate anointed one of God. That's why it's capitalized. We mentioned before. Anointed is capitalized in verse 2. The word son is capitalized in verse 7 indicating that the translators understood that the ultimate fulfillment of these words is in the person of Christ. And so that is the Lord's word this day in our day to the nations of the world and to their rulers. Jesus is my anointed king. I've made him my king. I'm committed to him as my king. He is my king today, and he will be my anointed king for eternity. So, you may as well get used to it. Nothing is going to change my mind. Nothing is going to frustrate my purpose to make him king for eternity. So, you may as well get used to that idea. Your efforts to, to resist and to reject that are futile. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy because he is my eternal king. Now, in verses 7 through 9, the Messiah... David, and then these words, of course, in the New Testament found on the lips of our Lord, speaks. I think what the anointed king is doing in verses 7 through 9 is taking courage himself from the words that the Lord has spoken to him. In other words, as David or Solomon would look out on these nations, he naturally would tend to be alarmed by what he saw and a bit shaken. And what he would do would remind himself of the decree of the Lord about him. I will surely, verse 7, tell of the decree of the Lord... He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Notice the word today. This indicates that Psalm 2 was designed to be an enthronement psalm, probably a psalm that was first used when Solomon came to the throne. This day, the Lord says, the day you become my anointed king, today I have become your father. It's just as if this was your birthday. You have entered on this day into a relationship of a son with the Father. And all of the love, the commitment, the training, the instruction, the protection, the defense that a loving father would give to his favorite son from this day forward, the day of your coronation, belong to you. You have entered into a, an intimate relationship of a son to his father. And I will protect you and support you and instruct you as a father would his own son. Today, he says, I have begotten you. It's just as if today is your birthday. Today is the day you enter into this relationship of intimacy with me. And that's ultimately, of course, fulfilled in Christ, who when he was crowned as king, the New Testament indicates in Acts 13 that this took place when, when he was risen from the dead. That amounted to his coronation as the eternal son of David. 
Today, when he was raised from the dead, the Lord says, You are my son. From this point forward, I will protect, defend, just as I have in the past. But from now until eternity, you are my son, my eternal king. Now, just as a loving father wants to distribute his assets to his son, so the father in heaven has assets to distribute to the son. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Notice these are the same nations that are seething in verse 1 and devising a plot to overthrow the Messiah. And the Lord says to the Messiah, Do you want these nations for your inheritance? Do you want them written into your will? Do you want to have control and power and authority over them? All you have to do is ask me. That's how simple it is, because I control them. They belong to me. If you ask me, I will give them to you. And so from our vantage point, we understand that the day is coming when Jesus will be sovereign over every peoples in the world. Notice the writer says the very ends of the earth will be the possession of the Messiah. There will be no village, no town, no city, no nation, no people group that will not be subject to him as a sovereign ruler, will extend to the ends of the earth. And the Lord goes on to say in verse 9 that any who resist this will be shattered. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. It's a very vivid uh, picture there in verse 9. Pictures the nations with all of their manpower and their firepower and their SS-18s and their ICBMs and their shock troops and the whole arsenal of weapons they have at their disposal. It says all of that makes them as strong in resisting the Lord's anointed as a 59-cent flower pot. And the day's coming, he says, when the Messiah is going to clean house. He's going to take a rod of iron and he is going to shatter the defiant nations, like cheap pottery. And they will be dashed into millions of tiny fragments. And that's the writer's point. You have no power to resist the Messiah when it's his turn to exercise direct sovereignty. If you resist, you will be shattered like so much uh, cheap china. So what's the bottom line then? Well, he gets to the application in verse 10. does not want to leave these kings of the earth without something to do in response to his words. He says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, O judges of the earth. Basically says to these kings, Listen, wake up and smell the coffee. Uh, these are the facts. This is harsh reality. You better listen to what I have to say. He kind of pictures God standing over here to one side, taking a few practice swings with a rod of iron. And he says, he's taking practice swings, you're cheap pottery, and he's about ready to, to start swinging at you. I'd pay attention. Listen up. This, he says, is what you are to do in verse 11. You mighty kings, most powerful men in the world, he says, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. 
The word uh, worship, if you have a marginal notation, literally means to serve the Lord, to become a servant in his court. Even though you in human terms are a mighty king, the most discerning, intelligent thing that you can do is to humble yourself before this mighty king and become a humble servant in his courts. Judas with fear, he says, and with trembling at the end of verse 10, another, or verse 11. In other words, recognizing how powerful and mighty the Messiah of, uh, of God is, that he's someone in whose presence uh, we must fear. He is not, as Aslan was described in the Narnia Chronicles, he is not a tame lion. He's not somebody to be taken for granted, not someone that we can ignore, not someone that we can wrap around our little fingers but he's someone to live in fear and trembling of. But you'll notice, he says, in the end of verse 11, that if you do humble yourself before him, you may rejoice. It says rejoice with trembling. Isn't that a striking phrase, to rejoice with trembling? I think his point is, is that if you humble yourself before the Lord's anointed, then all of this power that he has at his disposal, which one day will destroy those who are defiant, that that power now becomes your defender and that his power is no longer a threat to you. His power is no longer there to destroy you. It is there to defend you. And you tremble because you realize the power that can be unleashed, the power that is there. But you realize that that power protects you and therefore you rejoice. There's liberation. There's liberty. There's freedom in that. And so that's his appeal to these mighty kings of the earth to change their allegiance, to stop serving themselves as Lord and kneel before the Messiah. I attended the, with my family the fireworks display, the centennial celebration on the 3rd, and one of the moving parts of the ceremony was a naturalization ceremony that took place in the middle of the, of the celebration. And 26 residents of Idaho became citizens of the United States from all points of the compass, Poland and Czechoslovakia and Korea and Thailand and other places like that. And I was struck with the parallels between the oath that these citizens uh, were required to take to become citizens, these people were required, and what God asks of us when we come into his eternal kingdom. The very first thing that the judge asked these people to do was to forswear any allegiance to a foreign prince. First thing they had to do was recognize that the prince that they had been serving and had once been in allegiance to had to be discarded. And rejected. And the second thing he he challenged them to do, and 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 had them swear to do, was to uphold and obey the laws of this new uh, country, and to prepare be prepared to go to war if necessary to to defend their new country. And then he went on to talk in his speech following about how this freedom that they were now prepared to enjoy as citizens had been had been made available to them at great cost, and he referred to the lives that had been laying down on battlefields to, to give us this freedom and to preserve it. It struck me how like what God is saying to us and what he said to these people in Psalm 2 is. The first step he says you need to do is forswear your allegiance to any foreign prince and swear new allegiance to this new and mighty king. One of the rulers of the earth that came late in his life to recognize a new sovereign was Napoleon, once the ruler of all Europe. And he learned this at the end of his life, where the true king in life was. He says, I marvel that whereas the ambitious dreams of myself, Caesar, 
Alexander the Great should have vanished into thin air, a Judean peasant, Jesus, should be able to stretch his hands across the centuries and control the destinies of men and of nations. His last word in verse 12 is do homage to the sun. Literally, kiss the sun. It's a sign of humility, sign of respect. Do homage to the sun. Why do homage to, to Jesus, to the Prince of Peace? Lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon or quickly be kindled. Striking that, he warns us here against the wrath of the sun. Our picture of, of Jesus tends to be gentle Jesus, uh, meek and mild. And it is true that he is compassionate and forgiving and merciful. But the writer alerts us to the fact that his anger and wrath can be aroused quickly and suddenly. And therefore, he says, do homage to the Son, lest his wrath anger be kindled against you. Uh, this makes us a bit uncomfortable because it, it forces us to change our view of who Jesus is. We realize that we cannot put him in a, in a little box and label him and kind of tuck him away. He's not, uh, he's not safe. Um, he's, not, he's not safe. He's powerful and his wrath can be kindled. In fact, if you look at the teaching of Jesus, you discover that there is more teaching about the reality of hell that we have from his lips than the rest of the Bible uh, put together. And that's the writer's point here, is do homage to the Son, lest his wrath fall upon you. But then he concludes with these words, How blessed are all who take refuge in him. How happy, complete, satisfied, secure are all those who find their refuge or their shelter in the person of the Son. In other words, as we, as we saw before, when his power, which can destroy and punish when I take refuge in him, then that power is there to protect and defend me. And I become secure and at peace and stable because now the one of, of great power and might is my defender. I no longer need to fear him. He now becomes my protector. Well, what's the, where does the rubber meet the road for us as we look back at a psalm like this? Well, I, I'd like to make several suggestions in closing. Uh, first of all, a word to anyone here who has not uh, done homage to the Son. Uh, if you are here and you have never acknowledged Him as your Lord and Master, if you've not uh, forsworn allegiance to yourself as a foreign prince and sworn allegiance to this new Lord and Master, I would challenge you to do so today, lest the Son become angry with you, and you perish in the way. One writer put it this way, The message from Psalm 2 is clear. God is going to judge this world, so flee to safety in Christ. There is refuge in Him from the coming wrath if you surrender unconditionally. But if you hold out, there will be no refuge from Him. The biblical author is saying this to us. God has purposed to establish his righteous rule on this earth through his Son, and no one can stop him. On that day, a man will either receive him as hero, Lord, and Savior, or Jesus will destroy him as a diehard rebel. So give up and give in 
It's no use. He will rule with or without your consent. By faith, entrust your eternal safety to his protective care. Confess your sins to him. You can receive his forgiveness and his assurance of a place for you in the new age which is to come. It's a word, I think, also for those of us that have done homage to the Son, who do serve Him as Lord. I think there's a word of obedience in this. We must recognize that He is Lord, He is sovereign, and therefore is worthy of our unconditional and complete obedience. And one way we can take the message of this passage to heart is to to renew our desire and commitment to pursue unconditional obedience to the Lord, realizing that if we pursue deliberately a course of sin and disobedience, that in time it will arouse his anger. So if you're here this morning and you're doing something that you know the Scriptures forbid you to do, stop doing it. Or if you're not doing something you know the Scriptures enjoin you to do, then start doing it. I think there's a word of confidence, secondly, in this. As we read the headlines and watch the evening news and we see so many things around us that indicate that evil is advancing and truth is being repressed, to take quiet confidence that God is not rattled and therefore neither do we need to be rattled, that he is in control and these things that he is allowing, even participating in, have a purpose. Turn to Acts uh, chapter 4 and you'll see one example of how the New Testament believers did that very thing with this psalm. The first persecution that the early church received is recorded in the first part of Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are dragged in before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful judicial body in in the land, and uh, are excoriated and dressed down and rebuked and finally sent out. First time they had received a a threat from the powers that be. This is how they responded, starting in verse 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David your servant said, here's the quote from Psalm 2, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For, truly in this city there were gathered together, notice the parallel there between verse 26, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, two most powerful men in in Palestine at the time, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. But notice this, he still sits in the heavens. They gather together to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So that can be a word of of quiet confidence uh, for us to realize that God is still in control and the the defiance of man against him and his truth is futile and in the last analysis it cannot stand. And this can be an encouragement to us if you're part of this body and you're involved in an effort to arrest the spread of corruption in our culture, uh, whether it is with the abortion issue or with pornography, uh, and your efforts are frustrated and they meet uh, with resistance. 
we can continue to be involved in those, but if, if our efforts appear to be frustrated, to realize that God is still in control. He hasn't lost, hasn't taken his hand off the tiller. And then lastly, I think there can be a word of hope uh, for us in this. In Revelation 2, I won't turn there, but I encourage you to do so at some point. Uh, the writer of the book of Revelation places this passage in the lips of the Lord. He speaks these words to the church. Uh, and he says that you, if you maintain and keep my words and keep my deeds, you will rule with me over the nations of the earth, that we together will rule over the nations of the earth. That's the ultimate uh, power trip, that we will one day, I don't know what this will look like, but there's glorious possibility in that, that one day we will share his rule over the world. So I think there's a word of obedience and confidence and hope in these words for us. I'd like you to stand, if you would, in closing, and Reed will come and lead us in a couple of choruses to give us an opportunity to respond with our own lips and our own hearts to the teaching of this passage, songs which acknowledge the sovereignty of, of God and the sovereignty of Jesus, our Lord. <clears throat>